Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series, held on January 22, 2020, Tax Readiness, Proposed Regulations under Section 162M. The panelists for the webcast were George Manusos, a partner in PwC's Federal Tax Services Practice, Audrey Ellis, a principal in PwC's Mergers and Acquisitions Practice, Susan Lennon, a managing director in PwC's People and Organization Practice, and Sharman Priel, a managing director in PwC's People and Organization Practice. This excerpt consists of an overview of the Section 162M Old and New Rules for Covered Employees. Have a listen. So let me get to our agenda. Uh, We have a full agenda today. We're going to go first over the old and the new rules, the old regulations and the new proposed regulations. And then we're going to get into some of the guts of the regulations, definition of publicly held corporation, covered employees, what is applicable employee remuneration, compensation paid by a partnership, and then the various transition rules. So Susan, let me hand it over to you to start with the comparison of the old rules versus what we have now with the proposed regulations. Thanks, George. So just to level set, prior to the tax reform uh, changes in 2017, 162M imposed a million-dollar tax deduction limit on compensation paid to covered employees of publicly held corporations. And a publicly held corporation was only a corporation whose debt, or excuse me, whose equity, not their debt, was required to be registered under Section 12 of the Securities Exchange Act. Uh, the old rules applied only to the CEO and the three executive officers whose compensation was reported on the corporation's proxy and who were employed in that role on the last day of the tax year. The limit didn't apply to qualified performance-based compensation. It didn't apply to commissions. Further, compensation paid after termination of employment generally was not subject to 162M, and newly public companies had a very generous transition period. The new rules that were enacted under tax reform in 2017 are effective for tax years beginning after December 31, 2017. Publicly held corporations now include corporations required to file reports under Section 15D of the Exchange Act. This is mainly debt filers and foreign corporations trading through ADRs, and we'll get into those details in a few minutes. It broadened the definition of covered employee. Going forward, all CEOs and all CFOs are covered employees. It makes the covered employee status permanent. Uh, It eliminated the exclusion for qualified performance-based compensation and for compensation. But there is a transition rule for compensation paid under a written binding contract in effect on November 2nd, 2017. And we'll break that down into the various pieces as we go forward today. Great. Thank you, Susan. Uh, Let me get into polling question number one. Please remember that you do need to answer all five polling questions in order to receive CPE credit. First one is, has your organization evaluated the impact of the new 162M rules? Um, Susan, while folks are answering that question, a question for you. Is it safe to say under the old 162M rules, companies could structure around as they wanted to kind of avoid the rules? Absolutely. Which therefore precipitated the need (laughs) for these new rules now? Absolutely. It uh, caused a shift in how individuals were paid. So we saw a lot of stock options and other qualified performance-based compensation. All of that was excluded. 
and then anything paid after you separated, because under the old rules, you had to be employed in your role on the last day of the tax year. So if you retired the day before the last day of the tax year, anything paid after that was not subject to the limits. So there were a lot of planning opportunities to expand the deduction. So safe to say these rules are not taxpayer favorable, and any rules that we're going to hear about now are probably going to make it even less favorable compared to what it was before. Absolutely. Great. All right. Sharman, why let me hand it off to you to start talking about the uh, impact and the rules applicable to publicly traded corporations. Sure. So as Susan alluded to, there were a couple of expansions in the law, and uh, the proposed regulations have given us information about what those expansions are. So first of all, we knew from the law that the new uh, 162M is going to apply not just to companies that had equity registered under Section 12 of the Exchange Act, but also to any kind of security registered under Section 12 of the Exchange Act, or is required to file reports under Section 15D of the Exchange Act. And that is, by and large, uh, debt and foreign, uh, foreign companies uh, with ADRs in the US. Now, one uh, uh, clarification that was offered to us is that that status of whether or not you are going to be considered a publicly held corporation based on one of those requirements is determined on the last day of the tax year. So it does give some opportunity for companies to plan or at least to anticipate uh, without there being a kind of look back approach uh, to, um, to situations prior in the year. On the last day of the year, you take a snapshot, see what your requirement is under one of those two sections of the law, and you know what your status is as a publicly held corporation. One thing that was not necessarily in the law itself, but was in the legislative history and is in the expanded on in the proposed regulations, is that the definition of a publicly held corporation uh, was going to be expanded to uh, companies that we don't normally think of as corporations, such as, well, privately held co companies or S-corps or uh, partnerships. And under the proposed regulations, a publicly traded partnership that is treated as a corporation for federal tax purposes is going to be considered a publicly held corporation for purposes of what Section 162M if, as under for all the other publicly held corporations, it has one of these filing or registration requirements. So not only do we have new rules, we have new entities that are subject to these rules. It was only publics before. Now we've got private companies, like you said, that are now going to be subject to these. So That's brand right. new rules these companies are going to have to get used to. That's right. Yeah, they're going to have to make friends with their securities council as well as their tax professionals that they've been working with up until now. So, as I said, the requirement is tied to whether or not a, an entity has a, regist a registration requirement under Section 12 or a filing requirement under Section 15D. And the, the new proposed regulations really give us some um, pretty straightforward rules to apply. So if you are required by the Exchange Act to, uh, to either file or register, then you are considered publicly held. And if you are not required to, then you are not considered publicly held. And so the regulations gave us a few examples. So for example, uh, if you are not required to, but the entity voluntarily registers its securities under Section 12, that is not a requirement of the Exchange Act, and therefore that company is not considered publicly held for purposes of 162M. Uh, if the registration is automatically suspended under the SEC rules, it is not subject to 162M. On the contrary, if it's eligible to suspend its registration, but the company does not actually take the action to do that, then it will still be subject to 162M. So uh, it does seem like a fairly, uh, fairly black and white kind of determination of whether or not 
uh, it's subject to the 162M limitation. Effectively, whether or not you're subject to the Exchange Act. Exactly. Required to That's file. right. Exactly. And the same approach applies with respect to foreign private issuers. Until uh, these rules came out, foreign private issuers generally were not subject, often were not subject to the Section 162M limitation if it did not have uh, an, an executive compensation disclosure requirement uh, in its proxy, it, it, if it did not have to file a proxy with a summary compensation table. Under the new approach, the question is again whether or not it, the foreign private issuer itself, is required to either register or file under the Exchange Act. And so the examples provided to us are, for example, if you have ADRs or if an entity has ADRs that are traded on the over-the-counter market where the depository bank, the bank that handles the, the American depository receipts, uh, are uh, whether that bank is required to, to register with the SEC or with the Exchange Act, then the issuer itself is not going to be considered subject to 162M because it does not have the filing requirement. It's actually the, the depository bank that does. In contrast, if the ADRs are traded on a national exchange, such as the New York Stock Exchange, then it itself might have an Exchange Act requirement to, to register its securities. And therefore, it would be subject to Section 162M. And then the affiliated group rules were also expanded on or explained to us in the, um, in the proposed regulations. So uh, Section 162M is always applied on an affiliated group basis. But, uh, but because of the, the large loopholes that we were talking about earlier, this did not really necessarily matter all that much. Uh, now we, we need to pay more attention to the affiliated groups, and we know that from these proposed regulations that um, the affiliated group is determined by Section 1504 without regard to 1504B, which means that foreign corporations will be considered part of the affiliated group. Uh, we also know that Section 162M will apply if there's a publicly held corporation basically anywhere in the affiliated group. So whether it's the parent or the sub or a brother or sister, as long as there's a publicly held corporation in the affiliated group, uh, those, the rules will apply to the entire affiliated group. One uh, nice thing that came out of the proposed regulations is some uh, clarification that, as with the old rules, if there is more than one publicly held corporation in the affiliated group, each of those entities has to determine its own covered employee group, but it also gets its own set of 162M, the million dollar limitation. Whereas if there's only one affiliated group, or one publicly held corporation within the affiliated group, and if there is a covered employee who's paid by multiple entities, then that $1 million limitation gets actually shared uh, and allocated across the multiple entities. So those are rules that uh, aren't necessarily a surprise, but are, it's good to have the clarity about how they work. Are there a lot of groups that have multiple public corporations within their affiliated group? I guess there are. Enough. Yeah. Maybe yeah. not lots. But then each but... of them gets their own million-dollar deduction, That's like right. you said. Gotcha. Right. I think we see it now with the debt filers being brought mm -hmm. in. Right. Because right. I, I think it's rare to have had stock filings. Yeah. Good point. But, but the, mm -hmm. Yeah. The addition now with of the debt, debt filers. filers. Right. So Utilities. you have an even broader scope of people subject to this rule now. Mm -hmm. That's right. Gotcha. Great. Charmin, thank you. Sure. Susan, let's go back to you to deal with covered employees and the specific rules around that. Thanks, George. Well, as Charmin just said, once you determine your publicly held corporation, if you have multiple publicly, publicly held corporations within your group, each of them has to determine its set of covered employees. So under the 
the, new, the statute is amended in the proposed regulations, a covered employee is any of the following. Anyone who has served as CEO or CFO during the tax year. So under the old rules, if you were the CEO and you retired the day before the end of the tax period, you were not a covered employee. The individual who was CEO on the very last day of the tax year, his or her first day as CEO, would then be the covered employee for that year. Uh, it also applies to the three highest compensated executive officers of the publicly held corporation for the tax year. In addition, any individual who was a covered employee of the publicly held corporation or any predecessor corporation for any preceding taxable year beginning after December 31st, 2016 is a covered employee. That's kind of a, you know, wordy part of the statute. So what the rules require you to do is figure out who were your covered employees for the taxable year ending December 31st, 2016. Who was the last group of covered employees under the old law? So that would have been your CEO and your three executive officers employed on the last day of the tax year. That group, as de defined under old law, is your first group of covered employees under the new law. And then you keep adding. So if there's a new person who's CEO, your new CFO, as those executive officers change, you just add to the population. The new law provides that once you're a covered employee, you're always a covered employee. So that applies to payments while you're employed, payments after you separate, if you die and your beneficiaries or estate receive payments, the tax limit continues to apply. So I like to think of it as eternal covered employees. So it's broad. You just keep adding to the list. Interesting. So it, it sounds like at a minimum, there's five people that need to report, CEO, CFO, and the three highest. Is that safe to say? In general, yes. But um, let's take a look at that and determine. We, we know we'll have a CEO. We know yeah. we'll have a CFO, mm -hmm. or likely to have a CEO and Assume CFO. We do, yeah. it's the, the question then turns to those other named executive officers. So for those individuals, First of all, you need to be an executive officer, and that's defined under the SEC rules. As Sharman mentioned, companies are going to become very well acquainted with their SEC counsel as well as their tax advisors in walking through these rules. So you need to be an executive officer for SEC purposes. Those rules basically look to, do you have policymaking authority for the publicly held corporation? Once you've gathered your list of executive officers, then you need to see which three of those individuals had the highest compensation for the taxable year, but using the SEC definition of compensation. Now, a lot of companies have to go through this already for their proxy purposes, but debt filers may not have, foreign private issuers may not have. So you need to figure out who is that group how much did each of them make? And whoever's the top three, those are your covered employees under that category. The IRS issued a notice in 2018 on this issue, and it, the rules are echoed in the proposed regulations, that you may have someone who never shows up on the proxy, 
and yet is a covered employee. Because the proxy requirements require you to be there on the last day of the fiscal year, whereas now the tax rules have disconnected from that, and it's just whoever made the most that year. And so there's an example uh, in the proposed regulations where someone who had retired, who's not on the proxy, made more than somebody who's on the proxy. And the retiree is the covered employee. And generally, three means three. However, you, again, the first thing is how many executive officers do you have? You don't have to create an executive officer. You don't have to promote someone to get to three. If you can substantiate that we only have two or we only have one other than the CEO and the CFO, then you're not required to create one. But I think IRS will be looking for documentation of that. So I guess your earlier point, generally five is the minimum, generally. unless you don't have three other executive level folks. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So a covered employee includes anyone who is a covered employee for any predecessor taxpayer. So what does that mean? This has been a subject of much discussion and debate since the statute was enacted. I've got a publicly held corporation. I'm acquired by another publicly held corporation. Does the buyer inherit the covered employees of the target? And the basic answer is yes. So the covered employees of the predecessor carry over to that ever-increasing list of covered employees now of the buyer. And if the buyer is then bought by another publicly held corporation, you just continue. On and on and on. Yes, the rules apply cumulatively. Uh, the proposed regulations provide some special rules for spinoffs and for asset acquisitions. Um, but I think the general tenor is once you're a covered employee, it's really hard to shed that uh, title. We do have some clients who have gone, some taxpayers, they're publicly held and they go private. And then after a few years, they have an IPO or they're acquired by another public company. And the proposed regulations provide in that fact pattern that there's a um, cooling off period, for lack of a better term. You look at what's the tax, when did the corporation as public file its last tax return? Then if there's at least 36 months between the last tax return of the original public company, so now I've gone private, if there's 36 months in between there before you go public again, then that's enough cooling off period that you can shed those old covered employees. But if it's quicker, you know, if, if it's within three years, you go you're still public, tainted. private, public, you're still tainted. Right. So again, you know, it's, it's going to be a lot of record keeping. It was especially when you get acquired, that company could have covered employees from multiple, you know, predecessor entities and now you've inherited that, you file a consolidated tax return, and you are going to need to be able to justify the fact that, well, yes, there's a million-dollar limit, but I have a transition exception, and these are the, the records that I have to, to document that. So I think it's going to add another level of complexity to M&A deals and what kind of documentation can you get from targets. Because the targets are going to need to share information with the acquirers. Yes. And the, it sounds like the acquirers are going to be required for their own benefit to make sure they're obtaining and doing their own diligence for the target company. Because now the acquirer 
has the risk if there is not an identified covered employee that's being disclosed to them. Right. Both that and if I do know who the covered employee is, whether or not any compensation paid to that individual after they separate, so SERPs, other retirement plans, can I substantiate a position that that was grandfathered, which we will get into later. But it's, it's putting an onus now on getting that information, keeping, creating that information, keeping that information, and in the M&A context, getting that information from targets. Fun stuff. <laughs> um, you had said, when I asked, generally, um, is the minimum five? The minimum is not five. What happens if you have less than five? That's all you report? There That's all you report, okay. but I think the IRS has been clear that they assume you have five. So you're going to need to be able to document the fact that you have less. And one thing I should point out, emerging growth companies, you know, smaller companies, for SEC purposes, generally only have to report three people on their proxy. It's the CEO and then two, up to two other executive officers. And when the statute was enacted, since the statute still tends to tie back to the Exchange Act and the SEC reporting obligations, there was a question whether those emerging growth companies only had to treat those individuals as covered employees, and both the IRS notice from last year and the proposed regulations make it clear that if you have five, you have five. Or if you have a CEO, a CFO, and two other executive officers, even though they're not on the proxy, they're covered employees for tax purposes. All right, why don't we get into um Charmin, let me hand it back to you. We've covered who's subject to the rules. We've covered who is a covered employee. Let's talk about what types of compensation of the covered employees now made you subject to the limitation. If you can walk us through those rules, please. Sure. And it's interesting because there are actually two different times that you would have to determine compensation. One is what Susan was just talking about, which is determining who some of your covered employees are. You have to look at their compensation. And that's actually driven by the SEC rules. What we're talking about here is the remuneration that is subject to the 162M deduction limitation. And so that is determined under a different set of rules, which is what is the compensation that the corporation would be trying to deduct that year uh, with respect to that covered employee? That's basically the way to look at it. What is, um, it's not necessarily what's um, on the person's W-2 or anything else. It is what is the corporation trying to deduct. And one of the differences that you might see is where a corporation is deducting a bonus payment in one year, but that's actually getting paid out to the executive in a later year. And so that would be on the person's W-2 in that later year, but it would be on the earlier uh, tax return. And then that is what you are looking at to determine what is subject to the deduction limitation. So it's important. It's the year that the company actually claims the deduction, not when it's reported that's, by the employee. That's right. So you have and, a one year or longer lag, depending on the type of compensation. That's right. And uh, one of the um, points that Susan had made earlier is that it also applies to compensation that's potentially paid out to someone other than the covered employee themselves. So. The example that is probably more realistic in many respects is uh, compensation paid to a beneficiary or an estate after somebody's death. If that person was a covered employee, they're always a covered employee even when they're no longer with us. And so uh, that compensation still must be tracked 
for the deduction purposes. Uh, there are some limits to what is considered compensation for this purpose. So contributions to qualified plans like 401k plans or defined benefit uh, qualified pension plans, um, benefits that are anticipated to be non-taxable uh, from an employee's perspective, so health insurance, things like that. Th those typically aren't the large dollar amounts that, um, that the corporation is, is uh, counting on deduction. And then finally, one very large expansion that was in these um, proposed regulations that isn't really an expansion from a, uh, from a technical standpoint, but is from a practical standpoint, is that the Section 162M deduction limitation applies to all remuneration, and that includes remuneration not paid to the person in their role as an employee. So for example, if the person uh, receives director fees uh, or um, it becomes, uh, has a contracting agreement after, uh, you know, a consultant kind of agreement after termination of employment, that compensation, that remuneration also is subject to the 162M deduction limitation. Like I said, not necessarily a change in the actual rules, but uh, because of the way compensation arrangements were typically structured, those kinds of payments would typically be made after somebody had terminated employment and was no longer considered a covered employee for purposes of the old rules. It will be something that, again, is a burden on tracking and a burden of paying attention to that we're not used to having to do. Right. And these rules are still fairly new. Uh, what are your experiences so far on companies trying to comply with these, trying to get documentation for this? Well, I guess they're not, they're not effective yet, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, it, it seems, it sounds like there's going to be a lot of burden here that companies may not be anticipating. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, and um, some of these fees don't necessarily have deferred tax assets associated with them, but it does put quite a bit of burden on companies to be able to track forward their deferred tax asset or the lack thereof. Right. It's almost like do a dry run this year. It yeah. seems like, you know, I mean, to start, to, I mean that seriously, like that's get right. your information, see what kind of, if you were subject to the rules this year, then how am I going to report all this? What information is being reported? Audrey's going to tell us a little bit about the information that has to come up from partnerships. Start to get all your partnership investments, get them in tune to what the reporting obligations right. are as well. Great. Thank you, Sharman. Thank you for listening to this tax readiness podcast. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the speakers. You can find their contact information in the description of this episode. Thank you.